Well, by far the most famous piece from this celebrated French sculptor, Auguste Rodin, as the Europeans like to pronounce it, is the work that came to be known as The Thinker. You know the one. The uh, contemplative man sitting on a rock in desperate need of some clothing, um, <laughs> looking down with his chin dug into the back of his hand, right? You've seen him. The uh, sculpture is in a museum in Paris, but if you go home, you might find, if you have a lot of books, that there might be a smaller version uh, serving as a bookend in your library. I mean, it's a very common piece that's been copied in our culture, and you'll find it everywhere. Frequently, it's used as an image in college catalogs and on websites to represent the field of philosophy. Right? But actually, Rodin carved and created this statue just over 100 years ago, not to have us think of philosophy, but to have us ponder the tenets of theology. You see, he initially entitled this work, The Poet, not The Thinker. And the one that he had in mind was the 14th century Italian poet named Dante. Dante, you might remember, was the one who wrote this epic poem, the first installment of which is, in, is called Inferno, which is the Italian word for hell. Now, Rodin created this image to be looking down and to be pensively and reflectively pondering those who were entering what Dante and he called the gates of hell, the portal, the entrance to hell. Now that uh, scene is disturbing at best. If you ever get a chance to look at a, at a good representation, a, a good-sized cast of what we call the thinker, you'll see his face is not uh, trying to untangle you know, some philosophical question about, you know, I think, therefore, I am. This is a man who's gazing down at a tragic scene of men and women shuffling into their eternal abode, lost men and women. The scene is made even more poignant if you've ever read Dante. When Dante described the gates of hell, he described it in his poem with an archway over the top of it that read this, through me, you pass into the city of woe. Through me, you pass into the pain that is eternal. Through me, you go among people lost forever. Justice moved my exalted creator. The divine power made me. Before me, all things were created eternal, and eternal I will stand. Abandon every hope, you who enter here. Now take in for a moment what Rodin intended for you to come away with as you see the poet looking down at this scene and imagining the fate of lost men and women departing into outer darkness, away from the presence of God and into their eternal retribution. 3,000 years ago, Solomon wrote, that there's a time to laugh, but there's also a time to weep. He said there's a time for dancing, but there's also a time for mourning. Well, it seems like modern Christians, they don't have any time for weeping and mourning anymore. No place for that. We avoid it at all costs. But we cannot be honest students of the Bible 
without recognizing that as we read through the text, we're struck with a lot of difficult and hard doctrines that any thoughtful Christian should be uh, impacted by in a really poignant way, with pain and weeping, and as Calvin said, with great dread. By contrast, today's best-selling Christian books often contain the sentiment that was actually inscribed in the opening lines of last year's best-selling book. This Christian author says, I've written this book for all those everywhere who have heard some version of the Jesus story that has caused their pulse rate to rise or their stomach to churn and their hearts to utter those resolute words. I would never want to be a part of that. You're not alone, this author writes, for there are millions of us. This book that was voraciously consumed by modern Christianity then went on to excise all those pieces of the Christian message that would cause anyone's pulse rate to rise and stomach to churn. And you're left with a God and with a Bible that does nothing for us but cause us to laugh and to dance. There you have today's favorite preachers, big churches, best-selling books. Christ's favorite preacher, on the other hand, a man named John the Baptist, who we've been getting to know in our series in Luke 3, apparently had a stronger stomach, maybe after eating all those locusts, but uh, he wasn't afraid to tackle the issues that make our pulse rate rise and our stomachs to churn. He wasn't willing because of a, you know, a rumbly belly to dismiss an entire swath of theological truth that began in the garden in Genesis 3 and continues on past John the Baptist's ministry all the way into the book of Revelation. He was willing to deliver the entire message, which includes some pretty painful themes which we've been studying and actually we've been working around the most painful one. Well, we've talked about sin and we've talked about repentance, but today I'd like to pick up in the last installment of our series on John the Baptist here in Luke 3, the theme that we've kind of tiptoed around until today, and that is the end, the consequence, the stakes for those who are impenitent, for those that reject the message of repentance and faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obviously, there are metaphorical terms that are used here, but if you don't get the idea that the Holy Spirit is working hard to fill our hearts with something that's not happy and fun, then you've missed the point of this text and of all of John's preaching. Let's review a little bit. Our text for this morning is Luke 3, 17 through 20, but at least let's highlight a few of the things that we've kind of skipped past so far. Verse 7, for instance, when the crowds approached John the Baptist to be baptized, he called them a brood of vipers, a clan of snakes. And he said, who warned you to flee from, here's the phrase, the wrath to come. You do understand what the word wrath means. The anger. Anger of who? The anger of God. It's coming. You're coming here now to flee from that? He tells them then to repent and bear fruits, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. Oh, don't hide behind your associations with Israel and Abraham. He says, God's able to raise up from these rocks, these stones, children from Abraham. 
But even now, now highlight this, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down, here's our theme now, and thrown into the fire. You want a frequently used theme to talk about the end of those who are unrepentant. Here it is, fire. Oh, there's lots of other themes. The worm that doesn't die, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth. I get all of that. But there's hardly a motif that speaks to us in a more dreadful way than the consuming nature and the pain of fire. He says, if you don't bear fruit, if there's no evidence of new life, the end of your road is fire. Of course, they asked him, what does repentance look like? He goes on to tell them that for the next few verses. Down to verse 16, when they said, are you the Messiah? He responds by saying, I'm baptizing you with water. I'm calling you to repentance, yes, but the immersion that you need that's something I can't give you. It's the one who's mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. He will baptize you, bottom of verse 16, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's two crowds here. Oh, there's one crowd, but there's two components to the crowd. There are those that are penitent, who are repentant, who are saying, what must we do? And then there are those that stand back with their arms crossed that he called the brood of vipers, and they're not interested. Oh, they want to hear what's going on with this desert prophet, but they're, they're not willing to submit to repentance and baptism. That's why I think with the immediate context, though fire can sometimes be seen in Scripture as a positive motif, here it's not. You got some that are going to be immersed with the Spirit. We studied that last week. You have others that are going to be immersed with fire. Keep reading. Here's our text for the morning, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand, not a tool you probably have in the corner of your garage, city dwellers, right? But you don't understand what that is. The next line says, he's using that fork to clear the threshing floor, another part of the real estate you didn't care about when you bought your house, threshing floor. Threshing floor, of course, had to be on your property in an agrarian society that caught a good breeze. The, the, the winnowing fork was the thing that was going to separate the two things he's about to talk about, analogous to people, the wheat and the chaff. You would tread out the grain one way or another. You'd beat it. You'd do all kinds of things to crush it, but then you had to throw it in the air and let the wind separate the two components, one of the shell that became chaff and one that was the wheat that you wanted. That was the good stuff. He analogizes... Christ, John the Baptist does, is having his separating fork in his hand. And he's come to clear, I love this, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. The chaff, this fire motif, here it comes again. He will burn with unquenchable fire. I understand this is a hard doctrine, and I warned you last week to take a weekend off. God isn't into superfluous repetition. Christ doesn't stutter. He's not just forgetting that he already told us. He repeatedly picks up the baton from John the Baptist and carries the theme of fiery retribution and outer darkness and weeping and gnashing and wailing. He picks that theme up and repeats it over and over and over again. And if perhaps... God is so insistent on giving us 
this focus on judgment, perhaps we're remiss as a generation to try to excise it. And even if you say you believe it, not to ponder it frequently. This is the beginning of what we're going to see throughout the book of Luke, a recurring theme. And I'd like to begin, number one on your outline, by having you jot down a very simple phrase that I hope will become the pattern of your life. It's what Rodin's statue was intended to invoke in your heart, and that is that we would routinely ponder God's judgment. Do you understand what's at stake? I mean, if this is all just bedtime stories and fairy tales, well, then move on to something else. There are better ways to teach your kids morality. But if you understand the real issue, that we have a sin problem that is going to lead us to the just tribunal of a holy God, and the only response is God pouring out His retribution, His just and measured retribution on sinful people, and that we celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's one place in the universe where His justice has already been. And the deal is this, you cling to that with a repentant, contrite heart, and you don't have to suffer the condemnation that you rightly deserve. If we don't get that, we've missed the whole point. Let's look at some red letters just to stay in Luke of a little bit, of a preview of what Jesus continually says about this topic. Turn to chapter 12 real quickly. Luke chapter 12. I'm tired of being castigated by our society, even our Christian culture, for talking about things that Jesus wouldn't leave alone. Stop with your little caricatures of, oh, just this hellfire and brimstone preacher. Well, <laughs> I guess you'd qualify John the Baptist is such. And if you're going to throw him in that category, you might as well put Jesus there too. Because he wouldn't stop talking about it. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do. Now, I'm afraid when I think someone's standing before me who has the intent or the motive or the, the, the ability to kill me. I don't like that. That's a scary situation. But Jesus says, listen, it's really nothing by comparison. Because once they kill you, Mike, that's all they can do. When you're, when you're done and you're at the morgue and you're on the, on the gurney, it's, what else can they do to you? There's no more pain they can inflict in your life. Verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body, that's enough to disturb people's little flowery image of Christ right there. Christ is talking about a God who can today put you in a mangled car accident in South Orange County and end your life. He has the power to do that. He's the God of all providence and sovereignty. But that's not all he can do. After he's killed the body, he has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I can look through all the David Cook and, you know, all the kids' VBS material I want, and I'm never going to find a, a theme based on that verse for our third grade curriculum, right? But in a generation that's coming on the heels of another generation that's already spent almost a lifetime neglecting this doctrine. We're the generation that, as other writers have pointed out, that will deny it 
I'm thinking it's not a bad idea to remind our third graders what's at stake. Oh, we don't want to scare Susie and Billy into becoming Christians. Did you just read verse 5? Did you read it? I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Night, honey. Sleep tight. (laughs) Jesus doesn't seem to have the same constraints as you do. You want to scare people into heaven? Jesus wasn't real concerned about that, apparently. Yes, I tell you. Fear him. I don't like that kind of preaching. Great. Let's just go on the record. You don't like Jesus' preaching. Because this is the incarnate son of God. William Shedd, have you heard that name? Dr. Shedd wrote one of the classic systematic theologies. He said this, the strongest support of the doctrine of eternal punishment is the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. Though the doctrine is plainly taught by Paul and many others in Scripture, yet without the explicit and reiterated statements of the God incarnate, it is doubtful whether so awful a truth would have ever had such a conspicuous place as it has always had in the creeds of Christianity. I'm thinking, Shed, you'd be rolling over in your grave if you could see the current creeds of Christianity, which are all ablazoned on Christian church websites. Look it up. We're not talking about this anymore. Well, it isn't because Jesus didn't repeatedly, as Shed put it, plainly reiterate it over and over and over again. You really want to blow your mind on the Christ of the red letters of the New Testament? Drop down to verse 49. Verse 49. We've talked this about this many times. There are two installments to the advent of Christ. Advent 1 and Advent 2. Advent 1, he came to bear our sin. Advent 2, those that are unrepentant receive his judgment. Look in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. Now there's that image, that motif, that analogy of his judgment. This is the picture of his judgment. Now look what he says. Oh, I really don't want to do it because I love those people. Is that what he says? Is that what the next phrase is? Underline the next phrase. This is not how we picture the modern Jesus. And would that it were already kindled. Do you hear the disdain and frustration in his voice? As he walks through the streets and and hears gossip and sees people with lustful eyes and hears about adultery and hears about greed and bribes and kickbacks and he listens to all the things relating to murder and divorce and homosexuality and effeminism being exalted in society and all the theaters and what's going on. He says, oh, that it were already kindled, ready to start the judgment on this planet. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. There is a baptism for me. It's different than the baptism for you. The baptism for you, if you're a Christian, is to be immersed by the Spirit in the safe place, the only place where the justice of God has already been spent. His first coming was for him to be baptized with a baptism of the justice of God. And he says, oh, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I'm going to go to the cross and suffer the justice of God for you. That's hard. By the way, all the really trendy, cool, best-selling Christian books that deny the reality of hell, look up the section in the index of these books where they talk about the crucifixion of Christ. 
if they talk about it. They will blather their way through with a lot of tripe about it, not knowing exactly what to say about what happened that Friday afternoon. Because it makes no sense. If God is not a God of justice, who must punish sin with the severity of his anger, what's the cross all about? What's the whole point? What is this Isaiah 53 prediction hundreds of years before he came that he would be crushed so that we could be forgiven? That he would bear our stripes and be beaten so that we would be released? What's all that about? How is it that he takes on our sin, as John the Baptist says earlier, the Lamb of God that takes away the... What's that about? See, the moderns that want to deny the justice of God and the reality of an eternal hell, they don't know what to do with the cross. They'll come up with something, but it isn't what the Bible teaches, and it certainly isn't what the church has taught, as they've understood plainly that God is a God of justice. Well, I want my God to be a God of love. Well, He is. That's why He's provided a way out so you don't have to receive the condemnation of heaven. Well, I'm reading this book, and it's saying that this whole fire thing, you know, it's like my fireplace. I put a log in there, it burns for a while, then it's gone. So I'm hoping this is just an annihilation thing. That's what I've heard. Those are, you know, not as good selling as the other ones that believe there is no hell. But I, I can't, this can't be conscious post-mortem torment. I mean, come on. God's not that mean. Chapter 16 of Luke. Jesus, if that's not what he wants us to understand about the afterlife, is doing a terrible job trying to teach us here in Luke 16. You know the story. The rich man and Lazarus. The poor man is Lazarus, and he's carried away by the angels, verse 22, to Abraham's side. The rich man, on the other hand, he died, he was buried, and he's in, here's one of the Greek words for hell, in Hades... Being in torment, verse 23 says, he lifted up his eyes, he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Please send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this, there's that motif again, in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, which the implication in the context of this is selfishly, and, and he was a hoarder, and he was greedy, and he was covetous, un, unconverted, didn't trust in God, didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lazarus, on the other hand, he just sat there and ate scraps from the table that you weren't even willing to share with him. Now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish there. And besides all this, you talk about coming back and forth and sending Lazarus over. Forget it. Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, as if anybody would want to, they're not able. And that none may cross from there to us. And I know everyone would like to. Sorry. No hope. Abandon every hope, you who enter here. And he said, well, then, if that's the case, if, if Lazarus can't come here, why don't you put him back on earth? I beg you then, Father, verse 27, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Send him back so that he can warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, right? A.K.A., that's the Bible of the, of, of the early part of the first century. They're looking back at the Old Testament. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham. 
That ain't enough. They know the Bible. I know they've heard that story. But here's the deal. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. I just know how my brothers are. They just need a miracle. Then they believe. Heard that one? Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you see some double entendre there? Yeah. And they still don't. With all the credible information, they still don't. Now, hell is a horrible reality according to the teaching of Jesus. It's something that we should fear according to Jesus. It's something that is coming and God in His goodness is willing, even it seems anxious to bring it according to Luke chapter 12 because of the sin that so irks and, 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 and grates against the holiness of God. Now, I don't have time to prove the rationale of all this. I have in the past. I've tried my best. And on the back, I always provide you with some sermons. I try to rank them in order of, of, of being germane to the topic I'm preaching on today. But you, you need to spend some time, perhaps, if you're one of those new, new Christians or, you know, I don't know, neophytes in church, and you're saying, well, I just think it's overkill. Some little sins, and then you get to go to hell forever. If that's the way you view this, you need to do some research on this. And if you think, I, I don't get this. God is supposed to be loving, and, and a loving God wouldn't do this. Well, a loving God, as A.W. Pink says, is sure allowing a lot of things here and now that don't seem to sync very well with your image of what love is. But more importantly, you need to understand the righteousness and justice of God. It's one of the reasons in the discussion questions I lead you to Psalm 97 to consider what that means. And if those are the foundational attributes of God, then where does that lead us? That he is good and he is just. He is righteous and he's a God of justice. And I don't have time to explore all that, but let me at least inject a well-worn illustration that I came up with and have given you many times, unless you're brand new, and that is simply this. I'm, I'm going to run next year uh, to be a judge in Orange County. But here's my, I'm going to run as the loving judge. That's what I'm going to run as, the loving judge. And I have my campaign slogan. Here it comes. Right, ready? Right. Vote for me, all go free. That's it. Vote for me, I'll go free. I'll go down the hallways, Orange County Jail, just unlock, unlock, unlock. All these trials you're watching on TV, a salacious murder, the girl kills her boyfriend. You don't even need that. Put me on the case. Let's get me on the stand. The Honorable Mike Fabares, all rise. Oh. Hey, sit down. Loving pastor. Hey, you're free. Love you, man. I'm a loving guy. Forgiving. You vote for me. Why not? Because you wouldn't be a very good judge if you weren't just. See, but you want God somehow to be good but not just. I understand how that works. We want God to be just only with people that happen to be worse than us. Then it's okay. We just don't want to be just when it comes to my life. God, if he is not just, is not good. And if God is not good, he is not God. I don't know how many times I've said that. But how important is this doctrine? Well, today, it just, it churns my tummy. So I want to write a book that says it doesn't happen. And I get all these wonderful young Christians going, yay, I'm so glad no one's going to hell. And yet I open my Bible and from beginning to end, I hear the warning of the coming impending judgment of God. 
you don't want to follow somebody with a rumbly tummy who can't handle it, then okay. But be sure not to take your Bible with you when you read those books. You and I need to routinely, routinely ponder the judgment of God. Let it motivate you, please. We've got a job to do. John the Baptist had a job to do. I think if you understand and routinely ponder the judgment of God, you're going to be a different kind of Christian in this world. Paul said this. Clearly, he wasn't the one who had no time for mourning and weeping. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Do you know the context of that? I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ so that my kinsmen, my, my brothers, the, the Jewish people, could be saved. He wants to trade in his salvation for theirs. I mean, I know this is literary and rhetorical, but what's his point? It's killing me that my friends are going to hell. Have you even struggled over that lately? Thinker, the thinker. Next time you see the image, remember what Rodan wanted you to think about. That if your friends don't repent and put their trust in Christ, I'm not claiming he was a religious Christian or anybody you'd want to go listen to lead a Bible study, but he certainly captured what Dante was going for, and that is this. You'd better understand what's at stake, and it should affect you to the place where you're motivated like the Apostle Paul to do something about it. There's almost a comical statement that comes next in Luke chapter 3. I get the fact that he's continuing on the theme. He's holding our head over it, man. There's going to be judgment for those that are unrepentant. I got it. And, and we've learned from it this morning. Let's, let's routinely ponder that. Let's regularly go back to think about that. But then this weird statement in verse 18. Are you with me here? Luke chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Like the soundtrack just changed in verse 18. What are you talking about? You've been talking about axes at the root of the trees. You've been talking about cutting fruitless trees into the fire. Now you're talking about chaff being burned up, and you're telling me this is good news? Really? Oh, and with a lot of other things, too, he kept talking about the good news. What, what good news is that? I think what we need to recognize about the good news of Jesus Christ, which is different than the good news of most people today, it seems, people that have no time for the bad news, is that the good news of Christ is predicated on the bad news. And I, I'm sorry if this is preaching to the choir because you've heard me say it 25 times, but there is no good news without the bad news. If I don't understand why I'm building the ark in my backyard, if I don't recognize why I'm telling my neighbors to get a seat on the ark, if I don't really ponder the fact that drowning is a terrible way to die, then it's all just an exercise in academics. It's all just say, hey, you want to get a picture by the ark I'm building? Really cool, isn't it? It makes no sense. You and I need to, number two on your outline, we need to see the good in telling the truth. You see, a major component of the gospel is the bad news that sin requires God's justice to punish us. If you don't have that, you don't have the truth of the gospel. You know, as a parent, and you've been there, parents, your kids sometimes come to you with quivering lip and tear in the corner of their eye, especially dads. You come home at the end of the day, and, and maybe mom's forcing them to or whatever, but they come to you and they, they say, Dad, I, I, I got to tell you something. Whenever I see my kid with that set up, I, I got to tell you something. I put my hand out, and I back up. 
I don't want to hear it. Sounds like bad news to me. Please don't tell me. And I go on, and what's for dinner, and that's it. Is that how you act, parents? <laughs> I got to tell you something. It usually takes 15 minutes to drag it out of them, right? What is it? <laughs> I don't, just, yeah, I don't, you're going to be mad. I don't know. You're not going to like. What is it? Well, it's just so, I don't even want to tell you. Mom says, I got to tell you. What is it? <laughs> Why do I want that? Because here's the thing. Here's my thought. Just spit it out, right? We can deal with it. I mean, at least let's find out what it is. We got to figure it out, put it on the table. Then we'll figure out what to do with it. See, there's something good about telling the truth, the whole truth, getting it out there. You want to tell your neighbors Jesus loves them? Yeah, well, that's half the story. There's more to it. Let us begin where the Bible begins. He's a just God who created you, to whom you are accountable. Mm, I'm just going to turn them off, man. I don't don't think they'll like that. And you know what? I'm really doing this for God because I'm trying to kind of protect God's reputation here. I don't want them to think badly of God. Start telling about sin and judgment and hell. They're not like God. God, I'm just protecting you. Hey, God doesn't need you to protect him. He's fine on his own, right? You just do what you're called to do. What are you called to do? To preach the good news. What's the good news? There's an ark that has been established and built. I know it's a terrible way to start a conversation. There's a flood coming. But see, the good news is there's a flood coming that you rightly deserve to drown in, but there's a way out. And without the bad news, there is no contrasting conjunction. All there is in our sentence is, hey, try God. Jesus might help you. With what? I don't, just, he'll save you. From what? I just, loneliness, I, bad parenting. I, I don't know. He'll save you. You think I'm kidding. Have you heard me quote the stat? The missionaries going to missionary candidating school were asked the question, what are people saved from? Half of them couldn't give the right answer. What are we evangelizing people? What is the good news? Two passages, real quick. Old Testament, they're almost next door neighbors. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Let's start in Jeremiah 23. You need to see the good in telling the truth. Here is John talking a lot about axes at the root of the trees and being thrown into the fire. And here the writer, the inspired writer says, oh, and he went on talking about the good news. He said a lot about it. The good news, why is this so good? Because it's good when you transmit the whole message. You do not have the right to redact it. Two things I want to see here. One from Jeremiah and one from Ezekiel. Let's start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. You have a responsibility to the recipient There's the first place I go. If you want to love somebody, give them the truth. Don't give them half of the truth. Give them the truth. You have a responsibility. You you ever, you're watching the news and they'll throw up some document from the Pentagon or from the State Department and it'll be redacted, censored, right? There's all those black boxes. Isn't that really what you want to read? The part that's under the black, what? I want to see that, all of that. We Christians are so good at redacting the message with these altruistic motives that we're just trying to help God's reputation out so no one dislikes God. The reality is God is mad at sin. That's what it means, the wrath of God. 
and he's coming back to judge. Don't redact the message. You have no right to censor it. Why? Because if you love people, you're going to give them the message that God has entrusted. Now, I understand this. We're all tempted to want to be liked. I want people to like me. I want people to like my Christianity. I want people to like my God. I want, to, I want people to really think that the Christ that I sang to Sunday morning at church is a really good person. So I'm tempted to redact it. If you become a redactor, a censor of Christ's message, verse 16 tells you what the Lord thinks. The Lord wants to tell the people that you work with and that you live next door to, don't listen to him. Don't listen to her. Why? Because she's giving He's giving you an information that is not the information I gave. He's redacting it. Verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are filling you with vain hopes. What do they say? Well, they speak visions from their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I got some things in my mind that I think, if I want to think about eternity and when you die, what happens, I got all kinds of ideas about how that should work out. And if God ever wanted to consult me, I got ideas as to how you could do this. But... I'm not called to do that. And that's what these Christian books are all about, you understand. Oh, I think God should do it this way. This is how I view God. This is the kind of God I think exists. Or I can go to the word that God has spoken. They can either speak visions from their own minds or from the mouth of the Lord. And the problem is with a lot of people, they speak visions from their own minds. What do they say? Well, this is a very appealing message. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it'll be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come to you. We hear this a lot in the prophecy. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. God's not happy with you. And you're telling your God loves you, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. God's anger is about to come break forth against this world. Verse 18, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. When was the last time you warned somebody in your workplace about that? The anger of the Lord will not turn back until it is executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will clearly understand that. I love that line. It's worth highlighting. In the latter days, you will understand. I love the way these books talk about the judgment of God, and they're always scratching you know, a big bald spot on the top of their head trying to, oh, I, don't, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. I love this line. Hey, in the latter days, you'll understand it clearly. You'll get it. I know you think it's unjust of God to send people to hell. You won't. In the latter days, you'll clearly understand it. Everyone from heaven's perspective gets the concept of hell. They understand it. And they all say, God is holy, God is just. As the angel says in the book of Revelation, pouring out the wrath of God on the last generation, they deserve it. That's a statement of justice. They get it. As for these people that redact the message, I didn't send them. Verse 21. I didn't send the prophets, yet they ran. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, that's what I'm pleading with you to do. Open the Bible. Read what Christ taught. Then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from their evil, the evil of their deeds. How can you say you're loving to the recipient if you don't give them the whole message? I don't want to upset them. Man, if I told you, you know, uh, at, at 12.15, I meant to tell you this earlier, but I didn't want to disturb you. There's going to be a bomb that blows up here in the auditorium. 
And I kind of thought, I shouldn't tell you because I just know how people are with news about bombs being in their building. So I didn't think I'd be good. So, you know, you might see me slip out at about 1214 because <laughs> I want to make sure I don't get blown up. But at least you'll be happy all the way to the end, and you'll probably still like me because I won't give you any disturbing news. You following this? You want to be nice to your friend at work and just say to your neighbor, your, your family member, God loves you. God lo Try Jesus. You can say that all the way till the day that they die. And at one point, they'll stand as someone who heard the redacted message of Christ through you. And they'll stand there before the tribunal of God. I can only imagine if they could, or perhaps they will, looking at you, saying, what, what's up with what you told me all those years? You never warned me. You love the recipient. You want to talk about Jesus to someone at work this week? Tell them the truth. There's no joy in this. I warned you last week. There's no happiness in this. There's no glee. There's no pride. There's no, there's no haughtiness. This is just sad news. We're all a bunch of sinners that deserve the wrath of God. And i got to start the conversation with the fact that the, the wrath of God is coming. Ezekiel 33. You're not only responsible to the recipient. You are accountable to the one who sent you. And I don't think we take this seriously enough. And there's no better illustration in the Old Testament than this. On this one issue of you being accountable as a steward of a message. Look at the way this is put beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel 33, 1. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, speak to your people and say to them. Here's the illustration now. You ready? If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of that land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, are you tracking with this so far? Let's say that God, it says to the northern tribes, Assyria is going to come against you. Or in the south, it'll be Babylon's going to come and attack you. Or in some point in Old Testament history, the Philistines are going to come against you. So you take a guy and you say, you're going to sit up there and when you see the army approaching, you warn us. There's the picture. Okay? If he does... He sees the army approaching. He blows the trumpet. He says, hey, everybody, here they come. The Philistines are coming. Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, they don't pick up their swords and get ready to fight and defend themselves or flee or hide or whatever, and the sword comes and takes that person away, hey, his blood's upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He didn't take warning. His blood will be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, man, he could have saved his life. But... Verse 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming and says, oh, I don't want to wake anybody up with the sound of this blaring trumpet. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to talk about swords and judgment. I don't want to say any of that. Doesn't blow the trumpet, doesn't warn the people. And the sword comes and takes any one of them away. That person is taken away in his iniquity. In the analogy, this is all about, this is a deserving onslaught of God's judgment. He's still going to be dead because he deserved to be, but... On top of that, hey, watchman, the person who died, his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Wow. So you, son of man, now let's make this very clear. I know, Ezekiel, you're tired of the hellfire and brimstone sermons that I'm making you preach. But I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And whenever you hear a word from my mouth, here's a good line to underline, you shall give them warning from me. 
You an evangelical Christian? Really? You're going to give people the news? Give them the warning. If I say to the wicked, oh, wicked one, verse 8, you shall surely die, and you do not speak and warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, and he'll deserve it. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, well, then that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now look at the last two analogies here in verses 8 and 9. In both cases, the person dies. In one case, you warn him, and in one case, you don't. Here, the responsibility and the onus shifts from the person you're sharing with, because here it doesn't seem to make much difference, and that may be your rationale. I don't want to talk to a person about the coming wrath of God, because I don't think they're even going to respond to it. It doesn't matter if you think they're going to respond to it. The only difference here is God holds a messenger accountable for not sharing the message. Do you remember when Paul was leaving Ephesus after three years of ministry in Acts chapter 20? When he's leaving, he makes an interesting statement. Something that's misquoted all the time. I hear this misapplied all the time. He says, I've preached to you the whole counsel of God. You remember that line? And, here, and you know what we think? We think of J. Vernon McGee. Made his way all the way through the Bible, man. Paul must have preached a sermon from every chapter of the Old Testament. And he's going, look, I preached to you the whole counsel of God. That is not what we're talking about in that context. The context there in Acts 20, what precedes that is this. I went around in Ephesus, even from house to house, not withholding anything from you that was profitable, teaching you what? Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's one thing to teach our friends, hey, you need to trust in Christ. You need to trust in Christ. Here's the negative side, and it starts this way. Repent. Repentance assumes a few things. It assumes that we're sinners. It assumes that needs to stop. It assumes that if you don't stop, you're going to be punished. That's the warning side of it. He says, I preached to you both sides of this good news message. The bad side, the good side. I told you the whole truth, and it was a good thing I gave you the whole truth, because here's what he says next. I'll quote it for you. Verse 26, therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Think about that. If you don't think he has Ezekiel 33 in mind, then you underestimate Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament. Clearly, this is in his head. God is not going to require their blood of me because I told them. I told them, even if I thought they weren't going to respond, I told them. I warned them. I told them to repent. You've got to see the good in telling the truth. Yeah, Mike, but you don't realize how mad all my friends are going to be if I start talking about sin and judgment. You do not understand how they will criticize me. They won't like me. You don't get it. You really think I don't get that? I don't understand that? You don't think I've lost a few friends over that? A few? Oh, I get it. I get it. And you know who else really gets it? Who's been attacked for telling the truth far more than me? John the Baptist. Let's go back to him real quick. Luke chapter 3, verse 19 the man who's all about preaching the good news, which included the threat that you may burn with unquenchable fire, speaks now anachronistically. We're now going to get a piece of information about John that is out of chronological order. We're about to, in verse 21, start talking about his baptism, but now he's going to talk about him getting locked up in prison. And here's how the story goes, verse 19. 
But Herod, the Tetrarch, now remember we tried to explain briefly and untangle the Herods. There's a million of them in the New Testament, and we kind of built a little chart at the beginning of this chapter in chapter 3. But one of the Herods that rules here in this area is Herod Antipas. That's the one that's just called Herod in this context. Herod Antipas, it says here, the Tetrarch, one of the four leaders, had been reproved by him. That's the word to, to rebuke someone. It's the same Greek word that's used when Jesus says, when someone sins, go and show him his fault. Point out the error of his way. Right? He, Herod, Anipus, had been reproved by John the Baptist, him, for Herodias, his brother's wife. Now, we'd have to look at the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, but this is Herod Philip, his brother, Philip, Anipus' brother, is married to a gal named Herodias. They must be related, right? Herod, Herod, Herodias. They are. Gets a little icky here. Philip marries his niece. Philip marries his niece, and Josephus tells us on a trip to Rome from Judea, Herod Anipus spends a little time with his bro Philip and gets enamored with Philip's wife, who happens to be also Anipus's niece, gross, and decides he's going to steal his wife away and successfully does, and it becomes scandal. Headline news, right? Anipus steals brother's wife, also niece, right? I mean, this sounds like it's out of the headlines today. This would happen, you know, on the news shows. Now, if you didn't follow all that, just remember this, is bad, okay? <laughs> what happened was bad. And so when John the Baptist gets an opportunity to get a little FaceTime with Herod Anipus, guess what? He doesn't say, oh, oh, let me, can I get a picture with you? He goes, dude, you have been in the headlines for stealing your brother's wife. That's wrong. That's sinful. He points out his fault. He rebukes him. Reprove is the translation here. Shows him his fault. Oh, and he didn't stop there, bottom of verse 19, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this, uh, and he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. <laughs> John now gets thrown in prison because he's telling Herod, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. You want to talk about someone who knows the pain and the repercussions and the reactions of telling people the truth? It's John the Baptist. You know where that ends, right? We don't have it in this text, but you know what happens to him with Herodias and, and Herod, Anipus. As a matter of fact, speaking of Rodan, as part of his big ensemble of sculptures, part of the gates of hell has as one of the components of it, if you know this you know, French art, is, is actually John the Baptist's head on a platter to remind us of the, in, the, the impenitent hearts that's willing to go to all lengths to say, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner. Stop preaching to me. Here's what Jesus said about it. You remember the old list of beatitudes? Blessed is the this and blessed is the that. The last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. John the Baptist knew what it was like to get thrown into prison because he spoke up to a non-Christian about his sin. That's what motivates the word gladly on your third point. We need to gladly endure the reaction. Are you going to have a reaction, a negative reaction, if you move from the cultural Christianity of Jesus loves you, it's great, try God, it'll be good, your marriage will improve and your skin will look better and it'll be good for you. Just try Jesus. If you move from that message to, you know what, 
the whole message of Christ makes no sense until it is predicated on the foundational truth that you are a sinner, God is your maker, you're accountable to him, and the wrath of God is coming. When you move to that and you start preaching that way, you are going to have a reaction from a lot of people that is negative. We don't do it gleefully. We don't do it joyfully. It's not a happy truth, but we share the whole truth faithfully as a good steward of the message. And what I'm saying to you is when you get the negative reaction, Jesus taught us to gladly endure it. And speaking of John in prison, I think of, 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 of Silas and Paul in prison. After their beating in prison, what, what were they found doing at midnight? Couldn't sleep because of the pain, I'm sure, in their bodies. Singing hymns to God. They took that seriously. you know what the next line says in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. There's a great truth right there. Then it says this. It says, hey, rejoice and be glad when they revile you and say all kinds of evil things about you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for, for so they treated the prophets. You want to invert that? Jesus did it for us in Luke chapter 6. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so they did of the false prophets. You got a choice to make. You got a choice to make. Tell the truth and gladly endure the negative reaction that you'll receive. And stand in the long line of people that were gutsy enough to tell the truth. Now, the question for me is, is why did you have to be such a preachy little pest to stand there with a political leader and start talking about his sin when you just could have got the photo and gone on to a more receptive crowd and preached your little gospel message to someone else? Why such a, such a preachy pest? Here's, here's the one word, love. I've already mentioned it, love. Now, come on. You really thought Herod Oedipus was a good, you know, prospect in your evangelism? You really thought you could lead him to Christ? Even if he didn't think he could lead him to Christ, to sit there as a part of the voice from heaven to say what you're doing is wrong is a loving act. And let me show you real quickly why. One last passage. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now, follow this. We've got Herod stealing his brother's wife taking Herodias as his own. John shows up, and the first thing he does is confront him about his sin. Why would that be an act of love? It seems like you're just pestering this guy. I, I get that it seems that way. But here's the deal. I don't know if we think about hell the way we ought to. It is not just a place of passive judgment where God steps away and takes his goodies with him, although that's true, away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. It is also a place of active retribution, and that means you are judged according to what you have done. As a matter of fact, let's start at the bottom of this text. Look at, um, look at verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So for non-Christian behavior, there is wrath and fury on the day of judgment from God, and God will then assign them a place in the lake of fire. That's what the Bible teaches. When you continue in your sin, what you're doing, according to verse 5, is your hard and impenitent heart continues to store up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, which are only the converted hearts among us, 
Well, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Have you ever noticed that even non-Christians can curtail their passions and sometimes choose to do the right thing? What good is that? Oh, it's really a good thing. Even if they end up in a place of retribution at the end of their lives. Because the less they sinned here and now, according to the Bible in Rev 20, Revelation 20, the books will be open and they will be judged according to the things that they've done. Even if Herod never becomes a converted follower of Christ, if he repents of his sin, if he makes it right even with that one thing and doesn't continue down a path of sin in his sexual ethics, he will be spared punishment, at least in that regard. This is a loving thing. I know you think, well, you know what, just our Christian, we just need to continue to talk about sin and all of that here in our church. We can talk about it here, kind of an insider thing. You know, my neighbor going through that divorce, sleeping with that other, I don't want to get involved in that. You ought to. Oh, I don't want to be, I'm not, I'm not Mrs. Kravitz. I don't want to, you know, I'll be nosing around my neighborhood. Well, listen, if you are willing to stand up and boldly endure the reaction, and there may be a reaction, you will perhaps spare someone. Well, they don't want to hear it. Listen, they're already hearing it. They're already hearing it. Drop down in this passage, if you would, to verse 15. People show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. You don't think God. The day that Herod brought Herodias into his bedroom and, and he disrobed her and they engaged in sexual relations, you don't think that in his heart he felt the pang of conscience? You don't think Herodias felt the pang of conscience there? You bet they did, man. That was something that they were fighting in their own hearts. Their conscience bore witness to the truth that that was wrong. Look at the middle of verse 15. Their conflicting thoughts, they accuse and even excuse them. When it's right, they excuse themselves. When it's wrong, they accuse. Now, in their mouth, they may excuse themselves on everything, but in their heart, there's accusation and excuse. And all that's going to come to bear on the day when, according to my good news, the gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus. You should have known better. You did know better. Matter of fact, go back up to verse 1. Everyone knows better. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Well, you can't use that line with Herod because he's not judging anybody. Oh, but he would. Let's say Pilate runs into town on his nice sparkly gold chariot. Says, ooh, Herodias, hot. And he decides to steal Herodias from Herod Anipus. You think Herod Anipus go, oh, that's how we roll around here in Judea. Just steal each other's wives. It's cool, man. Enjoy her. You think that's how he's going to commentate on that? No way. No way. He's so easily seeing the right and wrong when the wrong is done against him. That's in his conscience. He knows that. And the Bible says because you have the ability to pass judgment on others, and all of us do, don't we? All of us do. I mean, when that gal gossips against you and you hear about it, you know, I didn't ever like that gal. She said to gossip. I hate that. Such sin. We had to preach on, get past my preach on gossip. We could roll the tape back, though. Oh, I know you call it sharing prayer requests, right? But we could go back and see you do the same thing. And you want to know, just go on the freeway. How quick are we to point out the bad driving skills of everyone else? Look at her, going on my lane. Oh, but when we swerve into someone, oh, we're just playing with the radio. Sorry, oops, you know. We've got all kinds of reasons that we're good drivers and everybody else bad drivers. 
Why? Because we can see clearly when someone else is doing it. And the Bible says all you got to do is turn that, that little ability to judge back on yourselves. We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And hey, if you love someone, you're going to point that out. Hey, Herod, what would you think if Pilate stole Herodias from you? Would you think that was good? No, you wouldn't, would you? You know better. Your conscience attests to this, doesn't it? You need to repent. Because God's judgment rightly falls on people who do that, that kind of thing. Do you suppose, O oh man, who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to rep repentance? See, Herod could say, well, you know what? I, it's working out with me and Herodias. John, just come on. God hasn't zapped me. If your God is so mad at sin, he would have zapped me already. He hasn't. I, I even got a nice little note before I went off to the palace today from Herodias. A great, cute little love note. Things are fine. God's going to bless this. Stop with your God judging me thing. John's response to that is, I know he hasn't judged you. You know why he hasn't judged you yet? Because he wants to lead you to repentance. Your neighbor's going to say, well, I can do this. God, it's fine. I'm fine. Now, there's a time, obviously, to kick the dust off your sandals and move on. But we ought to be real clear with those we see who are sinning. Even the non-Christian pointed out, evangelism is about making clear that we're sinners. Gladly endure the reaction. Funny how we're so willing to endure the reaction in other areas of our lives. My little daughter, you know, she's a little different, you know. She's got leg braces. She's paralyzed from these. If, what if my daughter came home from school and said, Daddy... All, all, the, all, all the girls at school hate me. Oh, they hate me. They hate me because I'm different. You think I'm going to go, well, yeah, you know, that's just, uh, come on, you know. Uh. No, don't you expect that any dad is going to put his arm around his daughter and say, who are they? I don't care, right? I mean, I'm going to stand in solidarity with you. I don't care if they do really hate you. Well, they'll have to hate me too because I stand with you, right? Anybody, anybody can do that to their kids. You don't even need to be an Orange County parent to do that, right? You're going to do that. Funny how we're willing to stand in solidarity and take the hatred and the, 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 the maligning or, or the insults of someone for someone in our family. But here's Christ saying, I know my message is harsh. I realize the truth of judgment is, is a tough pill to swallow. God would like you to stand with him. Christ would have you stand with him. Gladly endure the reaction. We'll get it. Hey, let me talk to you non-Christian for a sec. You don't know where you stand with God. There's no better sermon than one about the judgment of God. That's how all the preaching, it seems, in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, it brings it back to that. Let me just talk to you. Where are you going to spend eternity? Seriously. Oh, I just think it's all a myth. Well, really? Really? Your conscience really testifies that all this is a myth. Really? Well, I'm more of an agnostic. Amazing how many hardened agnostics turn very theistic on their deathbed. Amazing how that happens. When you face your own mortality. And you stand there at the threshold of meeting your creator. Hey, how about today, before you take another step in this world and risk meeting your maker without the benefit of being aligned with Christ, today would be a good day for you to get this right. You know, there's a lot at stake. 
I just don't believe it. Really? You don't believe it. Well, if you don't believe it, by the way, I think well, let's stop piecemealing the Bible. Either we embrace the truth of God's impending judgment or we move on to some other religion. Because, you know, almost every other one just push, sweeps this right under the carpet. Right? Hindus, Buddhists, I mean, you name it. I mean, the Christian cults, they've all done this. Ah, JWs, all the rest. There's no hell. Right? So they're into annihilation. Time for you to come to repentance. What does that mean? You know what it means. You do. Turning from sin. Seeing the evident fruit of repentance in your life. Clinging to Christ as the only solution. Having that real faith in Christ be the expression of your life every day. You're not trusting in your works. You're trusting in what Christ did for you. An evangelical Christian, how's your message? Has it been censored, trimmed up, redacted, glossed up? Have you excised all the things that churn your stomach? Hey, in a day when everyone's careful not to hurt anybody else's feelings. I was amazed a couple summers back with my obligatory family trip to D.C. to move into the Jefferson Memorial after having gone to several. I was done. Dad's usually done after the first one, but I, I walked into that one reading the marble walls there. In the northeast panel on the Jefferson Memorial, there was a excerpt from one of Jefferson's letters, not a paragon of Christian theology, by the way. But there was something there on the wall that I thought, you know, we're not even courageous, it seems, in our evangelism to talk about God's justice. But here I am in a, you know, a taxpayer national park reading about something that causes an Orange County pastor to pause and go, wow, that's it. Can we at least have the boldness of the phrasing from the northeast panel of the Jefferson Memorial. Which, by the way, if you look up the original letter that Jefferson wrote, he's talking in the context about the wrath of God. And then he says in the next line that's inscribed on the wall, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Hey, if you're not bold enough, Talk about hell and the torments of unquenchable fire. Can you at least have the boldness of the Jefferson Memorial? Have a little conversation this week about, you know what, I just tremble at the thought of God being a just God and that his justice isn't going to lie dormant forever. Concern for you about the justice of God. You see, because we as Christians are either part of the problem or part of the solution. For overly concerned about hurt feelings or jail cells or achy bellies, you're going to redact the message and just we'll, we'll reduce ourselves to nothing other than a bunch of impotent, ineffectual do-gooders in society. You can go from almost one church website to the next and that's what it is. Or you can be part of the solution. Oh, I don't want to become the character of the sandwich board bell ringing Turner Burn guy. Why do you care so much about what people think of you? Seriously. That really matters that much to you if they call you a name? Are you afraid of becoming the caricature of the Turner, Burn, Fire, and Brown? Hey, can you get over that? 
Christ was willing to die for you. John the Baptist was willing to be beheaded, to stand firm on the truths of sin, justice, and the coming wrath of God. It's important for us to speak up just a little bit more about the truth, the whole truth of the message of the gospel. Yeah, it'll cost us. But I like to be more concerned about him than people. I warned you, I I wasn't going to uh, enjoy this message. It's not one to be enjoyed. Please don't tell me you enjoyed the message today. It wasn't my, and if you did, something's wrong with you. (laughs) But if it made you think, if perhaps as we started, it makes you look down and ponder in your imagination, those who will enter the turnstile of the eternal abode where there is no hope and the God who rightly dispenses that kind of justice on the impenitent, then we've done our job here today. Lost sleep over this message. It's been a hard one for me to preach. Speaking of J. Vernon McGee, he used to say, no one should preach on hell unless they're willing to weep and mourn over its reality. I can say that I have, and I can say that you, in receiving this message, I hope, would be ones that wouldn't gleefully just pass it off as, oh, yeah, I know that, I believe that, I've always believed that. Please don't go there. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to weep. There's a time to dance, and there's a time to mourn. Calvin said, after commenting on all the ways hell was described, he says, the Holy Spirit clearly intended to confound our hearts with dread over the coming judgment of God. Your heart and my heart need to be confounded with dread so that we can perhaps become more faithful messengers of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we've gone again over time here talking about your son's favorite preacher. Don't want to make too much of that statement, but Christ did say of those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. A man who was willing to gladly endure the negative reaction from those in his day. Bold to stand before the powers of his day. To tell it like it is. God, we praise you for the example of John. More importantly, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, willingly incurring the wrath for us. And that there is an ark, there is a way out, there's a place where the wrath and justice of God has already been. God, we understand we, we can't beat this into the heads of our neighbors and coworkers. But if we haven't been faithful to express the fullness of the gospel, let us do that. As simply, maybe, as just the words that are already inscribed on the walls of public places in D.C. God is just, and it scares us. But he's not going to let his justice sleep forever. So God, prepare our hearts to be more faithful with this message. Give us a sense of sobriety about what's at stake. Let us contemplate this as we ought in Jesus' name.